If you weren't here last week, or maybe you haven't figured it out from our opening video, today we are starting a new series looking at a passage of scripture that many people are familiar with. Even if you're someone who doesn't come from much of a church background, I guarantee you've heard of the 23rd Psalm. In fact, you'll find this passage of scripture oftentimes alluded to in pop culture. For instance, uh, anyone know of a band called the Grateful Dead? I know this is older, all right? The Grateful Dead. Okay, so just one of you, all right, great. Well, we all know this song called Alabama Getaway, right? Alabama Getaway, the quotes, mentions the 23rd Psalm in that song. Uh, maybe something a little bit more modern. If you remember the movie Titanic, remember the ti- movie Titanic? If you've seen the movie Titanic, as the ship was sinking, the priest was doing what? He was reading the 23rd Psalm. And then uh, maybe a little bit even more more modern, and this is more of my time, and I don't know what the, 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 the modern, I'm not, I've, I've stopped trying to be really cool and relevant to people my children's age. So you'll have to come up to me and tell me later, like, what's the, what's the uh, equivalent nowadays? But when I was, when I was your age, it was uh, Coolio's Gangster's Paradise. Anybody remember that? You know, as I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I take a look at my life and realize there's nothing left. Right? Right? So, right? And where does that come from? Where, where does that come from? Psalm 23rd. Okay? That, this allusions to this idea of the 23rd Psalm. Now, Coolio is not a uh, reverend, or neither is he a theologian, but we see this. It's this idea of the 23rd Psalm. We've all heard it. You don't even have to be a Christian to know about this Psalm, but what does it mean? What does it mean? That's what I want to take a look at over the next couple weeks as we um, head into this time of summer, as last week I talked about as we seek to become people who grow in our knowledge of God. And over the next couple of weeks, we're going to dive in pretty deep. In fact, uh, this week, we're just going to look at five words in this psalm. Okay? Five words. Five words in this psalm. But before we do that, uh, I want to spend some time, and as we'll do every week, uh, we, we saw the video, we read it, but I would love to be able just to read it with you this morning. So if you would turn to Psalm chapter 23, it is one of the largest books in the Old Testament. You should be able to find it. Uh, if you have it on your phone, you can just type in search engine, Psalm 23. Uh, and would you read this together with me? Before we spend time talking about what is really, I think, a very deeply profound reality that can exist when you choose to allow the Lord to be your shepherd, as it can only exist for me, (laughs) I'm just speaking for myself, when I choose to allow the Lord to be my shepherd. Psalm 23. We'll read all of it. And then we'll talk about some of it. The Lord is my shepherd. I have what I need. He lets me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He renews my life. He leads me along the right paths 
for his name's sake. Even when I go through the darkest valley, I fear no danger. For you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Only goodness and faithful love will pursue me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord as long as I live. Would you pray with me before we dive in? Lord, by your Holy Spirit, would you open our hearts and minds to receive what you would want to speak to us this morning through this passage of Scripture that has been, I know, taught in churches since the beginning of the early church, over and over, that have pointed to who you are. And I pray that you would help us to understand with absolute clarity how this passage of Scripture is to lead us into righteousness and lead us into becoming more and more like you. And hopefully, God, lead us into a deeper and more authentic and more engaged relationship with you, our Heavenly Father. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. I don't know about you, but one of the things I struggle the most with is allowing other people to care for me. I don't know. It depends on how you're wired. Some people, they don't have any problem with asking people for help. Um, in, in fact, they're more than willing to ask people for help. It doesn't seem like, you know, like if I need help, why wouldn't I ask for it? I'm just not wired that way. I don't know about you. I don't know if you're like me. If you're a person who uh, is more than willing to help others, but when it comes to you receiving help, I, you're just not a kind of person who's, you know, the first thing you, you, know, you think of like when you're in need of help is to, I should ask someone for help. I'm just not like that. Which is second only to admitting that I am actually someone who does need help, who does need care. And when I think about it, <laughs> I think there is something clearly dysfunctional in the way that it's totally normal to be someone more than willing to be there for others while at the same time not wanting to receive help from others. I don't know. I mean, have you ever thought about that? Like, we pass it off as like a personality trait, but I think that's just very dysfunctional. I think there's something disturbing about that reality that we can be both the kind of people who are more than willing and actually feel like there's this obligation to be helpful, but a strong resistance to be the kind of person who is unwilling to be helped themselves. And I think therein is the problem. There seems to be something very broken within the human heart. And, 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 And what is this brokenness? 
I think this brokenness can be described in this way, that you and I are often tempted to believe that we should be able to take care of ourselves without the help of others. Like, for instance, it it is a broken reality to believe that everything we need to thrive and survive in this life can be obtained without the help of others. Like, it is a broken reality. It is broken for us to believe that everything we need in life can be obtained without the help of others. But we do it, don't we? I can do this. I got it. Well, I don't know. Unfortunately, there are many people in this world who, for one reason or another, some innocent more than others, some more mm, devious than others, embrace the belief that everything they need can be provided by themselves. That everything they need in this life could be and maybe mm, should be obtained through my own doing. And while this kind of thinking is great for making social media influencers, high-impact entrepreneurs, and motivational speakers and coaches become the kind of celebrities and idols that the world recognizes them as, there is one major downfall that that no one ever talks about. You see, when you're convinced that you don't need the help of others, but you can't seem to provide for yourself the happiness and or a wholeness you are looking for, you are left with a sense of helplessness or hopelessness that finds you, and here's the kicker, that finds you as the only person to blame. On top of that, asking for help then becomes this burden (laughs) of feeling like we're being needy. Like if I'd asked for help, I'd say, well, I don't want to be that person. I don't want to be so needy. And that's not a desirable thing because feeling needy is simply an indicator, right? And reason, why don't we want to feel needy? Because, because being needy, being a needy person is, is an indicator that we're wanting other people's help because we're actually not good enough. <laughs> right? That's why we, that's why we don't want to feel needy because if I admit that I need help, then I am admitting also that I am not good enough. And somewhere in the narrative of life, and somewhere in the values of life, I've been taught to believe that you've got to be good. You've got to be good enough. And this idea of wanting other people to help me and being a person in need just doesn't jive with this value that I've somewhere embraced that I need to be good. I need to be the person who provides everything that I need. And so I I don't want to put myself in a situation that proves that I am someone who is not good enough to help myself. That I am a failure. No one wants to live their life feeling like a failure. I I don't know about you. I, I don't want to feel like a failure. Do you want to feel like a failure? But because we believe that everything we need to thrive and survive in this life can be obtained without the help of others, we desperately try to solve our own problems, don't we? And how do we do this? Well, we 
self-diagnose, and then we self-medicate. <laughs> like, we, we self-diagnose why we're not good enough, and then we try to self-medicate as a way to make ourselves better. And what do we self-medicate? We, we, we self-medicate the restlessness. The restlessness in our hearts and soul that is really the result of the collision of a deep desire for someone to care for us and the guilt that comes from feeling like a burden for others. Am I talking to anybody who gets what I'm saying here? Like, have you ever felt that feeling? That collision of deeply feeling like you need somebody But yet also, there's this guilt that comes from somewhere. That like, you can't ask anybody. You're a burden. Everyone else is busy. Everyone else has their own problems. You can't bring their problems. And so how do we self-medicate our restless hearts and souls? Some people self-medicate through self-indulgence. Self-indulgence. This looks like this. You eat what you want. You uh, drink what you want. You do what you want in the hope that doing what feels good will ultimately make life feel good. Right? Then we do that. Right? I I know I do. I, I, I look as in shape as I do because I like to eat. And I mean in shape, not as in six pack, but I am definitely in a shape, like just more round. Right? Why? Because when I feel like I'm not in control, you know what I do? I reach for the food and it makes me feel good. What is it for you? We self-medicate through self-indulgence. Others do it. Maybe you're like, I don't do that. You're a more disciplined person. But if you don't self-medicate through self-indulgence, you probably do this. You probably self-deprecate. Now, I didn't say defecate. That'd be different. Deprecate. Deprecate. In other words, a person who self-deprecates is a person who convinces themselves to believe the lie that they're too far gone to be someone who can positively contribute anything to the realities of their everyday circles of influence, which naturally leads a person to believe that the world is better without someone like them. After all, who wants to be around someone who's always so needy? Someone who's so broken? Someone who can't help themselves, right? So people who self-deprecate resolve to do everything they can to be unobtrusive or unassuming. And then they double down on the reality or their so-called reality that life in itself is unremarkable. Ah. Philosophers would call it nihilism. It's meaningless. Nothing is worth anything. We live, we die, and that's it. And the sad reality is that self-deprecators often do this as some way, at the end of the day, they do this to kind of somehow pay for their sins of being a needy person. This is what's this is what breaks my heart when I see people who live in this way. Like they, they literally believe that they're worth nothing and then they embrace this 
ideal and this identity of nothingness as as if though it was the rightful punishment of their life's decisions. As if though they cannot even fathom of thinking about being some someone valuable because of who they are, of what they've done. And so they embrace this moniker, I am nothing. And when you look at the world around us, it makes sense to either, you know, it makes sense to embrace this mentality of, you know, I'm responsible. I can do this. I'm supposed to do this, right? It's very easy for us to embrace the, I can buy myself flowers type of theology. Without the perspective of the scriptures and the teaching of Jesus, it could be very easy to believe that you are the master of your own fate. And the only person who can make you happy and whole is you. Because you can buy yourself flowers and you can hold your hand. You can love you better than anybody can. But there's something profound in what is said here, I think, in Psalm 23 that is echoed throughout all of Scripture that I want us to wrestle with today. And what is it that is so profound? It's, it's, it's really this simple statement. The Lord is my shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd. For those of you who've heard me teach over the years on how to read the Bible for all it's worth, you'll know that I've always tried to emphasize that contrary to popular belief, the Bible is actually not for is is not actually about you. It's for you. It's, it's it's it was written for you. But it's not about you. It's not about me, right? What have I I always said? I've always said this, that the Bible is a collection of writings intended to communicate the good news about God. That's what it was meant for. The, The Bible exists so we can know God. In particular, the good news about who God is and what he has done. It's the good news about how God remains faithful even though you and I are what? unfaithful. It's the good news of how God makes and keeps his promise to rescue and restore us and eventually all of creation from the effects of and the power of sin. And if we had anyone left who said amen, that would be a good place to do it. But I think all of our ameners have either moved or have passed away. That was good. And when our perspective of who God is and what he wants to accomplish in the world, listen, when our perspective of who God is and what he wants to accomplish in the world is reoriented and realigned with what the scripture says about him, then we can ask the question, in light of who God is, who am I? So this is where we, well, we can never get to the point like, well, how about me? Like, well, yes, but only when we know who God is. And then this logically leads us to ask, in light of what we learn about who we are, how then shall I live? But that's the order. 
who is God, in light of who God is, who am I, and in light of who I am, and that identity found in the realities of who God is, then how would that kind of person live? Because that's a very clear picture. With that said, I want to look at this phrase, the Lord is my shepherd. And kind of do this with you, so to say. Like, I, I want to show you that you can study the Bible in the same way that I prep a message. So if this seems kind of maybe elementary, and you're like, oh, Phil, I could have wrote that message. Then I did my job. And that means you could do this too. You can open up the scripture and you can understand with clarity who God is, who you are, and how then you should live. The first thing we reserve from this psalm is that God is not just some other God, but he is Yahweh, the Lord. As one Bible scholar notes, the first word of the psalm, the Lord Yahweh, invokes rich images of the provision and protection of the covenantal God. He promised to take care of his people and revealed himself to be full of love, compassion, patience, fidelity, and forgiveness. That sounds like a good God. That sounds better than just the God of the air, (laughs) the God of the sea. This sounds like a very personal God. Let me ask you a question. When you think about the Lord, when you think about God, actually, is he the Lord to you? Like, like when you think about God, is he Yahweh to you? Is he this all-loving, all-compassionate, all-patient, always-faithful And willing to forgive. Is that the kind of person you think of when you think of God? Because listen, there is a difference between believing God exists and trusting in God as Lord. There's a difference between believing God exists and trusting in God as Lord. The truth is often illustrated, this truth is often illustrated by pointing to the fact that in the scripture, Satan is cast out of heaven, not because he didn't believe in God. (laughs) He knows that there's a God. But he was cast out of heaven for his guilt for not believing in God as his Lord. Right? Satan did not lean on the character of God as all-loving, full of compassion, always patient, forever faithful and forgiving. Instead, the scripture tells us in Isaiah 14 that there was something that made Satan believe that he was worthy of sitting on the throne of heaven that God was rightly sitting on. There was something that made him believe that I should be sitting there. And even though Satan uh, knew full well that God was the creator, he knew this, he was created by God, he was convinced that the only person worthy enough to be the Lord of his life was himself. 
And here's the scary thought when I think about the implications of Psalm 23 and the implications it makes by declaring God as Yahweh, the Lord. Listen, when I struggle to trust God as Lord, you know, the covenantal God who promises to take care of his people and reveals himself to be full of love, compassion, patience, faithfulness, and forgiveness. And I begin to believe that the responsibility is on me to give me what I need and that no one could love me better than I can. Here's a scary thing. I don't look more like Jesus. Instead, I look more like the evil one. When you look at your life, do you look more and more like Jesus? Or do you look more and more like something else? The second thing we observe from these first few words of Psalm 23 is that God cares for you. He's the Lord, but he actually cares for you. Like for you and for you. He cares for you. And when I say you, I'm not saying it in a plural way like I did when I came up here today and said, I'm so glad to be worshiping with you today. I mean you. Like the individual you. Charles Spurgeon wrote in this exposition of Psalm 23. He wrote this. The sweetest word of the whole Bible is that monosyllable. My. He does not say the Lord is the shepherd of the whole world at large. And he leadeth forth the multitude as his flock. But the Lord is my shepherd. If he be a shepherd to no one else, he is a shepherd to me. He cares for me. Watches over me. And preserves me. The words are in the present tense. Whatever be the believer's position, he is even now under the pastoral care of Jehovah. Man, nobody writes like that anymore. (laughs) Do you know that the Lord cares for you? Like, I'm not talking about intellectually. Like, ah, I know the Lord cares for me. Just like I know eating too much food makes me fat, but I do it anyways. I'm asking you, do you know that the Lord cares for you? Like, like, do you believe that? Do you believe that? And if you struggle with believing that, it may be because you haven't wrestled with learning to increasingly trust in the Lord as your shepherd. Well, what does that mean that the Lord is my shepherd? Like, what does that mean? Like, we have to, we have to talk about that. Well, in John 10, we have a, a very interesting passage of scripture here where, where Jesus is telling us that he is the good shepherd. 
And what is this good shepherd like? I don't have time to go into all of John 10, but I just want to highlight a couple of verses. John 10, 11 says this, Jesus, he says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. And then in verse 14, Jesus says, again says, I am the good shepherd. I know my own. And my own, <laughs> they know me. They know me. And then another one that's a little bit harder to kind of fit in the theme of what kind of what we're talking in today, but I, I actually think it's irrevocable. Like you, you can't, you can't talk about God, the good shepherd without recognizing this reality that exists when you believe that the Lord is a good shepherd. And it's this, verse 16. But I have other sheep that are not from this sheep pen. I got other sheep that are not here that needs to be here. In other words, I must bring them also. And they will listen to my voice. And then there will be one flock with one shepherd. Psalm 23 reminds us that God is the all-powerful Lord and covenant keeper, but also reminds us that he is a good shepherd who gave his life for you and knows you and desires that more and more people become sheep under his care. You can't divorce the reality that God cares about you, But ignore the fact that God cares about other people too. That's, it's, 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 you, you, you can't have one without the other. And so God is the one who promised to care for you and he loves you. God cares for you and he loves you. He's compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in everlasting, everlasting faithfulness and forgiveness. But God is not just the Lord of all. He's also your shepherd. But the Lord can't be a shepherd of sheep that don't recognize they are sheep. And it's okay if after contemplating everything in this psalm, And everything that it has to say about who God is and how that challenges challenges you to think about who you are. It's okay to realize that you have been living like a sheep without a shepherd. That you have been living the kind of life that says, I, I don't, I don't need anybody. <laughs> and, 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 and I wouldn't say this out loud, but I, I have been living as if though I don't need God. Like, I see my bills, and I go, how am I going to work? Uh, I look at my children, and I go, well, what book do I need to read to make sure I do the right things? Um, I look at my family, and I say, well, how do I need to show up? How do I need to be the right person? 
But I wonder what our lives would be like if we practice just a little bit more. A little bit more each day. I'm not saying being perfect at it right now. I'm just saying increasingly become more proficient in practicing the discipline of laying everything before the Lord and living as if though the Lord is our shepherd. And so when I look at my finances, before I try to figure out how I'm going to fix it, I go, oh Lord, be the Lord of my finances. Lead me, guide me. Before I try to go figuring everything out with how I parent my kids or how I interact with other people and reading the blogs and trying to figure out all the different types of psychological things. And you know, I, and and I I think it's great. Like I I love Enneagram, right? I love all that as a tool. Like I love those type of things, right? To help, you know, the interpersonal. I love those kind of things, but look at what if we spent as much time as we did on all those kind of things, reading all the blogs, looking at all the books, getting all the advice, what if we spent that much time first going into the scriptures and saying, God, who are you? Like, what are you like? What have you done? What have you accomplished? What are you promising to do? What do you want me to do? What if we spent a little bit more time in, in, in here and, 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 and before we went on taking a look at all the other stuff, we just, we just looked a little bit in here. And right now I feel like Francis Chan. Oh my goodness gracious. Right? What if we just took a little bit of time and figured out who God is. And let him speak to our souls. And you don't have to read the whole thing tomorrow. What if you started? What if you started praying just a little bit more? What if you started listening just a little bit more? Maybe then the Lord would be your shepherd. And as we'll talk about next week, when the Lord is your shepherd, you'll have everything you need. I do want to say this. If you're someone who realizes that you have been living as a sheep without a shepherd, your inability to live as a sheep under God's good shepherdship Is that even a word? I don't think that's a word. Shepherdship? Shepherding? Shepardship? Just make it up words now. Your inability to live as though God is your shepherd. Listen to this. Your inability to do doesn't change God's resolve to be. Hear me out. Your inability... To submit your life to God as, as, as a sheep under his shepherding does not change one iota 
God's willingness and resolve to be your, my shepherd. And if you have a hard time believing that, I want to leave you with something that Mark wrote about in Mark chapter 6. It says this, when Jesus went to shore, he saw a large crowd. And he looked at them. He didn't judge them. He wasn't disappointed in them. He wasn't frustrated. He didn't throw his hands in the air and go, Oh, this is why I need to die. I can't believe this. He had compassion on them. Why? Because they were like sheep without a shepherd. My prayer for all of us is that through these next few weeks, hopefully in your time alone as you look at the scripture, maybe your goal for this week is to read every single day Psalm 23. My hope and prayer for you and my prayer for me is that the Lord is my shepherd, that the Lord is your shepherd, so that you can say without a shadow of a doubt, I have everything I need. I don't know about you. That sounds like good news.